Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Okay, well, everybody, we're uh, James and I are here today with Austin McNabb of uh, DizzyPay. And Austin, welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Uh, excited to be on. I appreciate you guys taking the time to you know pick me out of a bunch of people you could have picked from in the first place. And I'm excited to kind of to speak on some topics here with both of you. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, listen, uh, I wanted to start off, Austin, if you don't mind, with a little background. Maybe, you know, you can, you know, enlighten us and our, our listeners as to, uh, you know, your your career path, what you drew you to merchant services generally generally, and to BusyPay in particular. Um, yeah, that's an excellent question. I, I actually tend to answer that a lot to a lot of different people. Sure. Um, well, I started this. I started in this business of June of 2004. Uh, uh-huh. I was a very young buck at 18, 19, I believe, at that time, uh, with the first company I was with. Um, back then, uh, I think Monster was a big thing. Um, mm-hmm. I had my resume sitting out there, and um, the company happened to call me and recruited me on board. Um, I, I would say uh, I was reluctant naturally to get into a commission-based kind of business. Uh, didn't understand what I was really getting into at that young of age. Um, but within six weeks, I went full time um, and uh, I, I jumped right into the business. I had the opportunity to work with, you know, some great companies, including the previous company that you know I worked with uh, for 11 years. Uh, you know, I was their number two employee, and I, I believe they ended up selling collectively for over 400 million. Um, and I was a big part of that venture, and I learned a lot from the two the, the two individuals that uh, were the top there. Um, and I've been doing field work in the field for. You know, several, uh, initially the several years that I got in the business, um, so I understand the field of work and going out in the field. Um, I also understand the executive level just because that's what I did for 11 years. Um, in those 11 years, I dealt with probably over 20,000 independent contractors, um, wow. you know, that got in the business and attempted to actually, sure. you know, either give this business, a, you know, a good try, good effort, uh, or individuals that actually, you know, d- gave it the you know, opportunity, actually went out there and succeeded in this business. So I've seen a lot of successes and a lot of failures in this business over the years. Um, and then in 2017 um, of uh, April, um, I decided to branch off. And, you know, as the company, the previous company was kind of going in a different direction of finalizing the, the final year or two of their sale, I decided to branch off and go on my own. Um, I felt I had the, the knowledge, uh, kind of my college, if you would, those 11 years. I didn't go to college, but that was my college. Right. Um, and it's 11 years, so don't, so don't judge me, 11 years. It's past normal <laughs> Took you a while to graduate, uh, but, uh, Austin. <laughs> it's, it's what I call, uh, uh, yeah. you, got your, you got your education on the, on the job, you know. I always yeah. tell people I got my MBA on the street, you know, just learning from people uh, in the business. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and I think it's one of those things that, you know, uh, you can't be naive. This business is forever changing and for you know forever kind of yeah. differentiating itself uh, from you know all the way from people getting in the business or technology or whatnot. So you know we started um, you know BusyPay um, in 2017. Um, we're you know three years you know deep now. We're in all 50 states. We have well over 6,000 clients. Um, we have hundreds of sales partners. We had one employee when we first started. Today we're at 34 employees here in you know, the good old Midwest. Um, we're, you know, we're, I, I believe we're, we're still a small guy and, and a big business, but at the same time, it's a very small world in the payments world, right? So right. Um, we're interconnected with a lot of good individuals, and um, you know, our company is you know, just trying to disrupt the payment space and do things a little bit differently with a, d- a little different mindset um, and kind of 
you know, uh, allowing the, I call them the dinosaurs, the older companies out there to kind of, you know, um, you know, put them to sleep, if you would, and, 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 the, and the naturally the, the disruptors, the, this new generation of, you know, ISOs, acquires, et cetera, um, I think are, are stepping up now, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, that well, that that kind of is a great segue to to what I one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today, Austin. In you know, there's been a lot of disruption, obviously, more recently with the coronavirus pandemic, and uh, you know, small businesses have been really hard hit. And BusyPay has a program called Look Local First. Now, I know this program predates the pandemic, uh, but it obviously has merit now. Um, could you can you give us a little bit of you know expl- explanation of what inspired the program, and how it differs from other programs like for example the Amex uh, Small Business Saturday program, you know what are some of the moving parts? Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, you know when we started VisiPay, we started VisiPay because I had one thing in mind, and that is to be the voice or protect or give small business owners options. You know, I think that's the lifeline of the United States. That's a life they employ millions of Americans, and and they deserve to have options. They deserve to, you know, be kind of put on a pedestal, if you would, and, and highlighted uh, to the public. And when we started thinking about ideas, you know, uh, AMX obviously has their shop, you know, their shop local, um, you know, uh, I guess um, thing that they actually push out to the public and been doing it for a lot of years. You know, but they, you know, we all know that also the highest card type to use when you walk into an establishment and the customer may not know that, but the owner definitely does. And so it's kind of ironic that a company like that is promoting it shop small and that's what, and, and they backdoor with the high processing fees, right? Sure. Um, and we're like, well, how can we do this in a way that, you know, um, is nowhere near like that? And so what we did was we put a head together and, you know, we thought of, you know, look First, and you know how can we approach this from an angle that's totally separate than BusyPay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because we want it to be separate. You know, it's a one-way street with Look Local First. Um, we only focus on that. We never talk about BusyPay, although it's although it's powered by us and it's also powered by the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we actually will get with chambers and we will get with you know agent groups that we work with currently. We will get with you know, local markets, you know, when it comes down to this local stores across the United States. And we actually even have a store online that people could buy T-shirts and stickers and, you know, social distancing stickers we just launched, for example. Um, and all that money goes back into the program to continue to highlight the small business owner through ads and different marketing campaigns that we have across the United States, specifically for this program, along with what we are powering from the back end, you know, when it comes down to the monies, right? Um, and with Look Local First has been, you know, it was a big hit beforehand, um, and, and naturally Look Local First is taking the next step. We have thousands of people that support it through all our social media channels, as you guys can probably see if you take a look online. Um, mm-hmm. And we are getting tons of sales through it, so people actually buying, you know, T-shirts and stickers and social distancing stickers and all those things, knowing that that money goes back into marketing small business owners across the United States. And that's what we want to do is we want to highlight the small guy you know, they, they, I think, make or break our economy overall. And with mm-hmm. COVID, I mean, naturally, it's it's enhanced it by tenfold, right? I mean, they sure. have to because those are the individuals that got hammered initially. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things that has been put in place across states and government agencies to help small business owners. But, you know, that's not going to be enough. 
right. they need that they need people, which is us, the public, uh, to you know highlight them as individuals that we need to put our money into and and, and help across the United States. So look local first is definitely been a big hit for us. Um, but I I want to be very clear though, we do keep look local first separate than busy pay for one reason, and because we don't want to be, although we're we power it, we want it to be its own entity. Um, and it's funding itself over time. It will fund itself. Um, and, and, and I think that's a big thing to make sure that everyone knows is, you know, that is something that we're very proud of and that we've taken a lot of time and effort uh, to put together and continue to expand that program across the United States. So when you talk about marketing, you're talking about <clears throat> what, like uh, Facebook, uh, social media, you send out blasts for individual merchants or for the group as a whole. I'm just I'm wondering about that. No, that's no, that's a that's a good question. Um, and, and it's through all digital marketing. Efforts. Okay. Uh-huh. You know, we you know Facebook, so, uh, social media is obviously huge. So any social sure. media platform mm-hmm. you are on, and we promote, we highlight business owners across the United States. We we do a lot of different things to promote small business owners and shop small, buy small, you know, look local. Um, and, and that's our focus too. And that's where the money is going into, along with you know. You know, maybe joining different types of groups, especially, you know, initially we started local in Des Moines, Iowa, just because we're here. And, right. You know, we put money, for example, with COVID, you know, we, we just did a, we just got done raising over $15,000 in an Iowa Together program, you know, that look local first led um, uh-huh. with, with that, with that, uh, with that nonprofit. And what that did was it actually, you know, we worked to raise money to actually buy gift cards at local small business owners establishments. Uh-huh. Um, and then, use those gift cards to actually feed families or give families the need, you know, oh, things yeah. they actually need to survive, toilet paper, toothpaste, diapers for their kids, right. um, and, and food for that matter. Um, mm-hmm. and, and we did that big campaign backed by Local Local First, but those are the kind of things we, so that costs money too, right? People, sure. Time and effort, you know, that we have to be able to do that. Um, and that's what these, you know, this is what we're going to continue doing across the nation over time as that program grows. So. So what what advice would you offer to other ISOs or acquirers that, you know, in terms of, you know, maybe they might be considering doing a similar program? Is there is there anything that you've learned um, that might help other people? Well, yeah, I, you know, I thought about that question a lot. Believe it or not, out of all the questions, that's the one I thought about the most, I think, when I kind of looked over the overview here. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I think it's actually a very simplistic answer when it comes to advice to any ISOs or acquirers. Um, you, you guys both, just, uh, just like me, have been in the business for a long time. And we all know there's a lot of players out there that would rather not be in the public eye. Okay? Sure. And we all know the reason why that's the case, too, as well. Um, if you're going to do a program like this, you've got to be willing to put yourself out there to the public yeah. and always be scrutinized and looked at twice, especially mm-hmm. when they find out who's powered by. Right. And, I, and I think if you're afraid of that because maybe your tactics or the way you guys do business this wouldn't work anyways because it would be fake. It wouldn't be genuine. Right, right. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that that's the biggest advice. If you're, if you're thinking that way, like, hey, I, I kind of don't want to have reviews on my Facebook page. Uh, you know, I kind of want to disable that. Uh, well, you probably shouldn't have a program like this either. You know yeah, I mean? right. You will be looked at. You know, naturally, you're just going to be looked at. And right, I think sure. That being in the public eye and being transparent and doing things right with the main entity, which is VisiPay, and empowering a program like this, you better damn well be sure that people are going to be looking at you hardcore. And if you're hidden, they're going to think it's fake, and they're not going to think it's genuine. And I think that's right. unfair to do it that way. So, 
you know, that it's would be my opinion and advice on that. You know, it's uh, it's really interesting you say that, Austin. I was just just literally uh, ten minutes before this interview, I had a conversation, a meeting with our operations guy, and we were talking about, you know, why is it that so few people are putting out content at scale on social media when, you know, everybody believes at this point that it's very powerful, it's very effective, and I love what you guys do. I, I always see your stuff on on different social media channels I follow, and, um, you know, I told him I said I think it's two reasons. I think Number one, it's very time consuming. It's not something you can automate and you can't fully delegate it. You know, you if you want to produce content and you want to get that value, the reason it's so effective is because just like anything else, it's effective because it's hard and it takes a lot right. of time and you know this, putting yeah, on content you do. It takes that investment. And then the other reason is that you know, it takes somebody who is comfortable with themselves and what they stand for and is not afraid to have their reputation scrutinized and, you know, all the things you just said. It's like, it's so true. And I think in our industry, <clears throat> I think it's time for a lot of companies to realize that, you know, long term, you play this out over the next five years. Privacy, everybody's like, oh, we really need to focus on privacy. Well, I have bad news. I mean, five years from now, you're going to have a lot less privacy than you have today in case you haven't already realized that. And so mm -hmm. people are going to be less and less likely to do business with a company that is not transparent, that's not like, sh you know, kind of showing and saying this is who we are. Um, you know, it's just going to becoming more and more of a requirement. You know, if, if people go to your Facebook page and they don't even really learn anything about your company, they're not going to want to do business with you. So I think that's a great point is that, you know, in our industry, a lot of people need to, it's like, everybody's like, wow, I, I understand the power of social media. I really want to embrace it. I just don't want anybody to know who I am or what I do. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, uh, you I can't, mean, and, you can't that, really that's, do that. That's, that's a home run point. Yeah. That's definitely a home run point. And, you know, and also, you know, you, you got to think about, you, you know, we also know uh, we're in a generation now that instant gratification is like a must, right? We have right. to see results today. Right. Right. Um, and we know when we, we actually have dedicated marketing teams, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in our marketing campaigns, knowing that it's a price, like it's a, Untangible result, right? You know, because right. we don't, we can't see how many sales we really get from these things, etc. It's just a, we're in the public eye and we know it, right. you know. Right. And it, and also it takes time to build that. It doesn't take weeks to all of a sudden people say, hey, you know, they're 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 a thought leader in the business, they're a voice of reason, whatever it may be. We on we understand that it's a long game. It's definitely not yeah. a sprint. It's a marathon. And as that marathon progresses, if your company focus doesn't align with being okay with being in the public eye, you're going to set yourself up for a a nice punch in the face, and that's not gonna <laughs> right. feel good when that comes. You know, so, so. true. Yeah, it's an yeah. it's an it's an overnight success about ten years in the making usually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way to put it. All of a sudden, everybody goes, "Wow, everybody knows who that is." Well, yeah, but you know, it, it took five or ten years to get to that point. You know, to get so. to that point, right, right. Uh, and especially if you have like, depending on your model too, right. So if you have a model that's based on independent contractors, which by the way, that's one of our pillars. We have three pillars of success here, and that's one of our pillars is independent contractors. Um, if you have those individuals, you and I both know, James, especially you, is they can go rogue and you got to be able to condense their mindset to you know, your focus and your vision as a company yep. and not have them be wibbly wobbly when they go out there and, mm -hmm. and do their thing. They have to buy into Look Local First. They have to buy into VisiPay's vision. They have to buy into those things. And if they can't buy into those things, I learned a long time ago in this industry, it's okay to say no. You know, this might not be a great partnership. Right. And I think that's hard for people to do, especially when they yeah. want sales. You know, I want it sales is. too. You know, I want new business all day. But I'm willing to walk away from you if you can't, you know, hold yourself within 
you know, the guidelines that we have, like we cap and regulate our agents when it comes to interchange and we don't allow yeah. them to go and just gouge people just to gouge people. We just don't allow those things to happen here. And, right. and the reason why we, you know, have a fine tuned thumb on all this is not because we micromanage them is because we want to set them up for success too, because they're the first person getting called out if a merchant sees a bad review, you know, right. and that also goes down line to us. So, you know, and, and, and if you have that model, I think that's a scary it's scary to be in the public eye if you have that type of model. Like one of our pillars is that model and because you have to be able to say, okay, well, if we have that model, we have to be pretty strong in our conviction on what our partners are promoting, you know, to the public on behalf of our name, you know? Right, right. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a, a great uh, pivot to um, a related topic I, to this, uh, Austin, and that's cash discounting. Um, you know, I know – VisiPay takes a different approach to cash discounting than perhaps other ISOs. And would maybe if you could describe the particulars of how your program works and how it differs. And, you know, I, 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 you know I'm looking at this because I, I, James and I have talked in the past, and I know you and I have talked about the concept that cash discounting is, the, you know, right now this might be a good time for cash discounting. Um, so... You know, yeah. can you can you give us a little thumbnail on on how on BusyPay's approach to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, cash discount. I've, I've been listening to James on this, you know, since the day it kind of came out um, when it came out as in being heavily, you know, used within the right. payment space with different companies, et cetera. And I think there's a, a million ways to skin a cat, if you would, in the cash discount. You know, doing cash discount programs. Um, and you know, we've we've taken it upon ourselves to work with the acquirer and the sponsoring bank to get vetted on a lot of different things. And for example, we just, we were about to launch a cash discount app for the Clover units. And then and within the next few weeks, and then a few weeks after that, we're launching it for the smart terminals for the packages that proprietary to us. Uh -huh. um, but we had to get vetted for all these things. And one thing I learned about cash discount is a lot of reps want to go to sleep at night knowing their book is safe, you know, and we want to go to uh, sure. sleep at night knowing our book is safe long term because you know you know everyone compares it to surcharging and you know cash discounts the same and vice versa we could we could all fight the fight and and think you know go back and forth all day on it reality wise right and both sides probably end up winning but sure. you know uh, at the at the same time you know it's like playing you know it's kind kind of like a you know, fighting right in hockey um, if I if I fought James in the street I go to jail he goes to jail. Right. If I do a fist fight in a hockey game, I Everybody play by the rules you. of the NHL, and they allow me. Yeah, and they allow me to fight. Well, the same thing with cash discount in my mind is in the Visa, Mastercard, and the Card Brand eyes. Is we can maybe do what we want on the street, but we have to still play by their rules, you know, and by what they feel and what their gut instinct on the programs that we actually display to the public and our partners. So what we wanted to do was, well, number one, we know we might lose certain businesses because of the way we're doing it. We also know that it might take a little extra time and probably a little extra money um, to do the, the way we do do it. Uh, but we had to accept that fact and embrace it, and we're doing really well with it. You know, I would say 60% of our sales with cash discount has been that way for a long time. We live it, we breathe it, we know it like the back of our hand. But the way we do it is it's, not a, it's never an, uh, an uptick at the register. It's always a downtick in the register, okay? So mm -hmm. we actually work with our clients to actually increase their pricing on their menu or on their board, on their oil lube board, if it's normally $50, it goes to 52 the price the public sees is the price the public pays. And if they decide to use cash, they get a, they get a discount and the, the, the price goes downwards. 
So you're not having the model, which is typically used throughout our nation, and we all know this, is the service fee model, right? You have a price increase through a service fee across the whole store. If you decide to use, you know, cash, we'll, we'll waive it, basically. We'll give you a discount on that service fee, right? That's kind of the normal Joe Schmo way to do it, and that's where there's, I think that way gets recognized the most. Uh, because you kind of compare it to surcharging, and you, I can go on all day about that. I've, I've, I've spent hundreds of hours reading and talking about this topic. Um, so the way we do it allows it to be frictionless, you know, um, because the price you see is the price you pay, and it goes downwards at the register. And that's how our apps are built, uh, are going to be built. It allows you to put your inventory in our menu, increase your pricing within, uh, you know, our, our app. And choose ones that you may not want to increase because it doesn't maybe make sense at that time. And then have the discount amount that you want to give the public for using cash at your establishment. And then our app also will disclose, you know, what what amount of money goes into your account the next morning compared to what doesn't based on the, you know, you know, obviously the daily discount or whatnot. Um, and that's how we do it. And it's it's frictionless. Our we did by the way we have tested and worked the other way, which a lot of companies currently do, and they probably have a great program doing it, maybe through their training or whatnot, and, but we found that that was a huge attrition. We, found, we saw huge attrition, no matter how good we trained the rep, you know, that when a merchant or an 18-year-old waitress has some friction at the register and doesn't know how to actually have that conversation, the, the service fee model way, um, merchants are 911-ing and calling and canceling and confused, and it, it's a nightmare, you know, um, while this way... It, our attrition is slim to none. He's, no one really knows it's happening as the public, as a consumer, because it's in the pricing, just like their electric bill is, just like their, you know, their, their meat for their tacos is. You know, everything's inclusive in pricing, so the public doesn't know any differences there. And then at the register, they get kind of that smiling moment of, oh, I get a discount for cash? Cool. You know, now, we all know on this, you know, we all know on this call that you know, cash will never take over ever again in our lifetime. But, you know, but at the same time, giving that incentive is still pretty important, I think, hmm. especially but, the way, you know, the way we do it. So, But doesn't it also, it would seem to me, and, you know, just to sort of be the the counterpunch here, you know, that there's some, yeah, you know, you talk about menus, and it would seem to me that, you know, for a, for a restaurant, this would be really easy. You know, a, a auto mechanic, it would be really easy you know, vis-a-vis, say, you know, uh, a convenience store that has, you know, hundreds if not thousands of SKUs. Doesn't, is, is this a good fit for every business, and or what businesses would it be the best fit for? So, yeah, so going back to what I originally said is we had to actually embrace that this is not going to be for every client. We just okay. knew it, okay? Right. And, and, and it goes back to your example, which I think is a fantastic example of a convenience store. That individual has thousands of SKUs most likely, or a grocery store, right? Mm-hmm, probably right. thousands of, you know, a small little grocery store. Well, that's probably not going to be a very easy thing for them to do to actually increase the price. So the backup model that we have is what we call a hybrid model, which okay. is a, basically AKA surcharging, okay? Um, and naturally, it only will apply in the states that it legally applies to. Right. Um, but our backup model is now, okay, well, we can't do this, and we can't offset you know, almost, you know, 100% of your profit fees. Well, let's see if we can offset 40 to 60 if you're opening to do this way. Now, it's going to cause a little bit more friction because you are naturally charging more on credit card transactions, but mm-hmm. you still get that benefit of some type of discount if you use your debit card or you use cash. You know, you, you're not going to, you know, with, with surcharging rules, you're not going to get that applied, right? Um, right? So for that person, there's always got to be a backup plan. 
you know, and the backup plan to still give them options because they deserve options is the hybrid AKA surcharging program that we offer our clients, which is a smaller percentage naturally of our business, but we do give that as a secondary option. And obviously the third option, by the way, we don't lead with interchange. Those days are over. Okay. Mm -hmm. We lead with cash discount back, backed up by hybrid backed up by interchange. And that's how we do that with that program. So you're right. It is not right for every customer. And we knew that. And we also know, you mentioned the menu thing too. We also know that there's going to be a little bit more time, you know, helping that client raise their prices on their menu, getting a menu redone, et cetera. And, and that investment as well. And we actually will chip in and sometimes pay all of the menu in, uh, you know, menus being redone because we understand that's a tedious process. And we work with our sales partners and our home office here in West Des Moines, Iowa to work with them to actually do it properly and get it done. So that owner feels confident that, they're within competitive range of their neighbors, you know, and we right. all know on a small ticket it's going up by X amount percentage, minuscule, but that does take us a little bit more time. So it may take us an extra day or two or maybe a week, but you know what? That rep, that sales partner of ours, that owner and ourselves, all three of us, this is a three-way street at that point, mm -hmm. um, especially if there's a sales partner involved, we all go to sleep at night knowing that we're doing it in our eyes, the right way to cause the least amount of friction between consumer and the owner. Therefore, we almost avoid any type of headache that can come with doing it the other way. So one, one thing, Austin, um, <clears throat> a couple of things about this I think are really interesting. And I, actually, until you told me this, I had no idea that's how you guys did it. So it's super interesting. I didn't even know there was an ISO that was pulling it off that way. So that's pretty cool. Um, you know, the fact you're doing it at scale in a way that, I mean, if I'm understanding it correctly, is 100% in compliance with Visa rules, um, you know, is, is really cool. Um, I think the reason why that way hasn't gained a ton of um, momentum in, in the rest of the industry is a perception that maybe with what you're saying, maybe the industry, we need to like revisit this. But the perception is if you do it that way, all of a sudden, the credit card processing is just credit card processing. So in other words, if they're, if they're basically just in doing a price increase that they could do without you, and they're implementing it basically without you, and then you're offering a cash discount without you, then where are the margins? In other words, the reason everybody loves the service fee non-cash adjustment model is that the margins are like everybody's at a 3.99% flat rate. Whereas with what you're saying, it yep. seems to me, unless I'm mistaken, one of your competitors could come in and say, well, yeah, you keep doing your cash discount. We'll give it to you for a two and a half percent flat rate. So what what are you doing? How, how is that working so that you're not experiencing that attrition? And what are your thoughts on on margin with all of this? Well, that's that, that's also a great question. You know, I, I remember when the program came out you, and you'll remember it just like I do. I remember some of your podcasts on it. Right. Right. You know, do you know how hard it was back in the day to. You know, if you were in the tier days, and it's still, it's still around, tier right. still around. Right. Sure. But back in the tier days, do you know how hard it was to get a rep to understand tier to interchange? I right. mean, right. They, they had yeah. to absorb. I mean, that was like a that was like a, <laughs> a, a heart surgeon to explain. That. I mean, it was crazy. Back yes, then, yes. Right? I remember many conversations um, and, and then, along those lines. Then, <laughs> you know how exactly how that went? Like, hey, these are four categories. This is how simple the statement is. To by the way, there's a hundred. Plus calories and right, but and it's cheaper. I can't tell you like how how much cheaper, but it's cheaper. Much, I promise. Right? <laughs> um, so when you know when cash discount came in play, and I and again I've dealt with thousands of reps, you know, across the nation, and especially here at Busy Papies, obviously this is you know you know our baby here, right? Right. Um, and you know when we first started uh, talking about cash discount, the service fee model way, 
And number one objection I got from not only owners, but I got from reps. Reps, too. They're just as, they're, they were just as against it. No way that's going to work. You're going to add a fee at the register? Are you kidding me? No, right. no way. My customers will hate it. My clients will hate it. Right. So we actually had to work with them and give them tools to understand the benefits of why you should do it that way back in the day. Right. You know? So the right. same thing here. You know what? I got, Take a wild guess. When we started, we call it cash discount 2.0, but – you know, to our current veterans, do you know how hard it was for me to actually have a conversation? Oh, by the way, the old way we used to do it, we highly recommend this way now. They're like, no way they're going to increase the prices. They could do it themselves, right? Right. And why would they ever do that? This is so much easier to just go in and sell it this way when literally six months previous you were telling me that there's no way they're going to do it in the first place. Right, right. right. So, you know, we're tra so training these individuals to have a conversation with these owners and, and stating that, you know, you could do it yourself, but reality, why would you? When I want to go out there, and this is called, you know, this is part of the, the package that we provide support-wise to our partners is, you know, we have to educate them and sometimes set, uh, cheek a salesman how to sell again because it's different, you know. And when you're talking to a business owner that says, I can just do it myself, what reality is we all know they can, right? But what they don't know is and what they don't have is the technology to isolate that increase. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, Right. And then you're also talking about the fact that they have to still look over their shoulder, uh, shoulder every six months, and we all know prices go up and down, right? That's still their worry. That's still eating their margin, you know, and, and, and that happens throughout the year, twice a year. It's just interchanging itself, let alone if you're a company that uh, tends to raise your rates behind that. You know, you're affected. So you're always looking behind your shoulder. With our way, it's a flat monthly fee. That's not your problem. We isolate the increase for you, which, Mr. Owner, you don't have that ability to do yourself unless you have someone in every morning and just taking out that extra percentage you know, that you want to put in a kitty to pay off your bill at the end of the month, which you know that's not happening. This is, this is, you're, you're a burrito shop. You need to focus on making good food. That's why I come here. I can also go make my own burritos at home and save half the cost, but I don't. I go to you. Just right. like I go to my accountant and I spend thousands of dollars a year. I could do hmm. TurboTax, but I need my accountant for a reason. You know what I mean? Same thing with the auto repair guy. And I think it comes down to training and working with your reps to overcome that. By the way, James, that is the number one objection we get compared oh, to before. The number course. one objection we got was they're not going to like it. My customers won't like it. Yeah, sure. Sure. They're not going to do a service. No way. This time around, our number one, absolute number one objection is they can do it themselves. I can do it myself. When reality is, if you put some, you know, some bullet points in play, which is a lot more bullet points. If you go to our website, you'll you'll be able to see a lot of. We even highlight it publicly. We we have no shame in our game. We want people to know because we want more people doing it this way. Right. So it, it catches fire for us. It's working. You know, I like we it. Like the industry, it's... To, you know, take a hold of it. You know, but and it doesn't impact our margin at all. You know, if a guy comes in and says, "Hey, Austin." I could just lower this this percentage. Well, you know, this company worked with me to build it into my pricing. They invested in my company with me in my menus, et cetera. And I have right. one flat monthly fee. It's on my P&L as X amount of dollars. It doesn't go up. It doesn't go down. And that's there's some value behind how we do it compared to just being a I can see that. Film, yeah, I know? can see that. So so let me, let me try to restate that real quick, and then we'll move on. But I, I think I got it. So basically what you're saying, Austin, if I'm hearing you right, is – the value proposition for the merchant here is that your company, through your proprietary technology and your pricing system, you're helping them to implement a cash discount that, yeah, sure, you could do it on your own. But if you did it on your own, how do you know that you're actually you have the correct cash discount and the correct pricing to 
offset your credit card processing cost of the penny, not too much, not too little. And so VisiPay handles that process for them to ensure that all they're paying is that fat, flat monthly fee. And then you're doing the rest for them to make sure that they pay no processing costs. Is that is that a, a, a way of like summarizing it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a perfect way. I I'm like it. Process that's cool. One flat monthly fee. Sure. And then with our Clover app and with our Pax app that we're about to, you know, officially launch, that's going to automate everything even further. Sure. You know, than it is already. Yeah, sure. Um, so that's cool. Th- yes. You, and then you, you, you and then you're saying you come you in behind that. Darn good. So. And and then you say okay. you're you say you're coming in behind that with a compliant surcharge program. So it's like, hey, if that doesn't work, we can do a you know a, I'm sure you don't call it surcharging. I think you use another name, right? But we can do a program where we do hybrid, add that hybrid, service hybrid. fee. Yeah, the hybrid. There you go. We do have the model where we can add the service fee, but then you're doing it in a compliant surcharge fashion, where of course you're not applying it to uh, you know debit and prepaid cards. Is that right? Exactly, because we actually had to go through the process all the way from you know, compliance team, you know, from the, the network, literally with our company. I remember going through it last year, pulling my hair out to make sure we get the plan in place <laughs> and do it the right way. Sure. And the, the surcharging part, that's easy. You know, that, that's, that's easy. You follow the rules and the guidelines that are out there. You have a terminal that can make sure it's hundred percent compliant. Right. The surcharging, which is our hybrid program is easy. The cash discount is a little tricky and you, and you got to make sure that everyone's happy, not just the owner, not just the sales partner, not just our company. But you got to make the card networks happy, or the choirs happy, the sponsoring banks happy. Right. Everyone has to be happy because if one person's happy, all of a sudden one day, here's a magnifying glass on your company. And if you do a little research, James, which I'm sure you know exactly the T what I'm saying, is think about how many companies did it the the, the service fee way last year. Just think about last year this time, mm-hmm. and you look at their website today. How many of those companies do not have the service fee model even on their website anymore? Because when you get audited, you get called out on it, and then you better b- make a pivot accordingly. You know, uh, because every year, every ISO that's registered, they get looked at. You know, regardless of your wholesale or retail. So, um, right. and and a lot of those companies, some big players, by the way, change their whole website to remove it totally. But why? Is it compliant-ish? Or you know what I mean? Is someone not happy? Well, in and the I world? think, and well, I, and I don't want to have that question. Yeah, and I I get where you're coming from. I mean, I think speaking for that side of the industry, I think the idea is everybody recognizes or should at least that those programs are really not in compliance completely with visa rules. The idea is that visa doesn't shouldn't have a say in it. So it's like, yeah, we don't want to put a red flag up for visa, but the Durban Amendment pretty clearly said that visa has to stay out of that. Um, And of course, they haven't stayed out of it. And and I agree. And I agree with you. And I agree yeah. with you. I think the other way is perfectly fine. By the way, I, right. I'm with you. Right. I think it just, it just, model, it just in your, it, it, it just it, you it, don't it, want to fly yeah. under the radar if you don't have to. Right. That's the key. Exactly. It, it, exactly. Yeah, I get it. Trying to do it this way. Yeah, I like right. it. I really do. I think it's a. I think you guys have a really unique place in the industry with that. I think that's pretty cool. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. And let me let me just you know kind of bring this back around to the current situation, Austin, if you don't mind. Yeah. Are you seeing more interest in cash discounting in the wake of the pandemic and forced business closures? I mean, with restaurants reopening now, you know, are they sort of reassessing like, OK, maybe, you know, maybe now's a good time to do this. Uh, you know, is this something that you're is this something that you're seeing more interest in? Well, yeah, you know, being, you know, doing this for as many years I've been doing this, you know, when you walk in the door, the one thing you teach reps never to do is walk in, hey, can I see your statement and save you money? I can save you money. I mean, we all know that's like the right. the, the, the walls go up, the owner's like, there's the door, they're using the middle finger. I mean, they're, they're ready to get you the hell out, right? <laughs> uh, right. I know, I do not want to talk to you, okay? But 
the crazy part about how the how the industry is now pivoted with COVID, and I actually think the companies are playing their cards correctly within our business. They actually get out of this stronger than they were before this even happened. I know that sounds horrible to a certain extent because what's been going on in America, but when it comes down to our space, I think ISOs acquired become, I think, five, ten times stronger now because they've evolved too. You know, mm-hmm. they've evolved with naturally curbside pickup order, you know, online order, all that stuff. That's great. That's all part of the technology. But now going into a door, it's not shut it down. You go in the door. Oh, you do payment process? Cool. Can you save me a lot of money? I'm about to reopen. Is there any way to save me money here? Mm-hmm. Now they're asking you to save you money. They're asking you to save me money as an owner, right? And that opens the door because a lot of these owners that we have dealt with, specifically restaurants that we've seen a lot of, believe it or not, they were already going to do a price increase on their menu when the door opens anyway. Right. You know, because they have sure, to be able to recoup, recoup some of the losses. If they got right. Some of the losses, right? right? So they're already doing it, but we just we're coming in saying, hey. By the way, if you're going to do it anyways, let us be involved. Let us help you do this. And by the way, we can also offset all your processing fees if we do it the right way. Mm-hmm. And we can do it in a way that's not friction, you know, causes any friction to the public. You know, we've all seen like the COVID-19 surcharge, you know, on receipts. We've seen that news articles right. out there. Like, right. let, let, let's not cause another 911, but make sure that you actually have put yourself in a position to recoup, you know, some of the money you have lost over the last eight weeks. And you know what? I think they deserve to do it, and they have the right sure. to do it as a business owner. You know, they've been the highly impacted with this, and so. and it's and it's a lot better than doing the COVID surcharge. I mean, you know, just the, the the mere fact that that's on those receipts, you know, makes people crazy. But if the prices are raised, they're not necessarily as crazy. You know, they they see it as a as a yeah. cost of doing business. So, well, this yeah, is- with restaurants and I mean, with bars and restaurants, bar like bars are going to start reopening too. You know, throughout the nation, like number one, they don't have a price that they show you on a wall for bars. Right. right? You go in, let me get a Bud Light, and whatever they charge, you charge. Right. I'm not going to notice an extra five cents or twenty cents, right? Or if you go to your favorite burrito shop and the burrito goes from ten dollars to ten forty, do I really care? Probably right. not, unless I come in there every day, five days a week, and eat. Then I might notice. But if right. I come in there with my family once every other week, there is no way in God's green earth I'm going to notice. Mm-hmm. So it uh, makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is really cool, Austin. I really, really appreciate it. I think it's uh, been very insightful. Um, you know, if there's folks out there who want to learn more about or perhaps work with VisiPay, where would you send them? Uh, I would send them to our website. Um, our website is I, I, as transparent as they come. We highlight everything we do to the T. Okay. Um, and that is uh, VizyPay, VizyPay.com, V-I-Z-Y-P-A-Y.com. Um, I mean, they probably get more knowledge on there before they even hit our doorstep if they ever wanted to ask questions or, you know, partner okay. up with us. So. Great, great. Well, Austin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I, yeah, uh, really I good really info. find this enlightening. I'm sure our listeners will, too. Thanks, Austin. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, everybody, uh, the big news this week is that the uh, 
car brands have all extended the EMV compliance deadline for automated fuel dispensers by six months. Hmm. Now, while every card accepting business in the U.S. has been required to support EMV security for about five years now, gas stations with uh, pay at the pump were given an extension. You know, at first they were given an additional two years to comply, which was then extended to five years, and it was supposed to kick in October of this year, and now it's being pushed out to April uh, 2021. I wonder why these fuel stations aren't, aren't taking these deadlines seriously, Patty. I can't figure it out. <laughs> yeah, right? I know. I, you know, we've talked uh, about this. That's <laughs> uh, funny. Yeah, uh, so this is how Discover explained it. Uh, quote, the new date gives petroleum merchants more flexibility on installing new systems, as many are dealing with economic and logistical challenges limiting their ability to make changes at their pumps due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sure. And then, uh, you know, Visa, uh, in its in its statement, you know, noted that fuel stations have, quote, unique challenges. That's uh, for which sure. have rendered the, the uh, transition difficult. And also, they also pointed to a lack of, of sufficient supply of regulatory compliant EMV hardware and software which is interesting. I didn't realize that they were still having it. I thought it was more of a problem with the um, certification. Right. And maybe that's just a fancy way of saying it's with the certification. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's actually interesting. It kind of makes me wonder about that. Um, yeah. 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 Hmm. I wonder, yeah, maybe that's the larger, um, you know, companies that are providing, because usually that kind of stuff comes from, you know, that's, these deadline shifts are not a result of small mom and pop, you know, independent no. fuel stations. That's the big shops that are having the issues. Right. Um, and so there must be getting pressure from them. And so maybe they're good. I mean, yeah, that could be a legitimate thing. I mean, we don't really hear about that side of our industry as much just because our podcast sure. is the merchant sales podcast. So, right. um, you know, but obviously there are, you know, first data has, you know, corporate fuel sales executives that are selling to, you know, Amico and, you know, things right. like that. Um, and so maybe, maybe there is a, a you know, an issue with uh, the supply chain could even have to do with the China situation as well. I would imagine it some could, of this hardware is developed. And there, I you do know. know that the, uh, you know, NACS, the National Association of Convenience Stores, mm -hmm. and a couple other of those types of organizations did, uh, you know, send a message to Visa and MasterCard way back at the beginning before the close down, you know, before the state started shutting down saying, right. you know, this is going to be tough. And Visa was holding firm saying, nope, we're not going to change it. And then they kind of, I think, as things got you know, as the close, as the shutdowns became more prolonged, maybe that also prompted them to act. Sure, sure. You know, um, it said it's Visa said its decision was based on discussions with involved parties and an analysis suggesting that the fraud rates um, were low vis-a-vis -vis fuel pumps. According to Visa, fraudulent card transactions at gas pumps only accounted for 1.3 percent of total U.S. card fraud. Now. That's a little interesting to me as well, um, since my understanding is that most of the card fraud associated with non-compliant terminals um, involve counterfeit transactions that are tied to card skimming, which is a huge problem with gas pumps. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, when I'm looking at headlines, rarely a week goes by that I don't see reports of Scarred card skimming devices found at somebody's gas pumps. Right. Uh, you know, I saw this one. 
just last week, it said uh, this. The headline was uh, "Nearly 5,700 Stolen Credit and Debit Card Numbers Discovered in Card Skimming invest- Investigation in Massachusetts at Gas Pumps in Massachusetts." Hmm. So, well, um, but is is card skimming like is that um, is, is that considered a fraudulent transaction though? Like. Is no, it, I that, think the, that's the, when they're that's how they're getting the cardholder information card to make the fraud, and then right. they're going somewhere else to actually use the fraudulent information. I guess is what it sounds like. It's what it sounds like. But my my huh. my understanding is, of course, that if you have, let's say, I have a gas station with automated dispenser, I get skimmed. You know, the cards get skimmed, and those cards then show up in other fraudulent uh, transactions. Those frauds are then tied back to the to my gas station, right? I guess if they if they knew f- that that's where that came from, right, right. So that's so that why be... I'm wondering about this 1.3 percent. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, the other relevant number is what percentage of total processing volume happens at gas stations. Exactly. Yeah, you know, 1.3 percent might be a, about right. You know what I mean? If 1.3 yeah. percent of total volume is at gas stations, then you would expect 1.3 percent of fraud to happen there. Um, right, right. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, all of the skimming stuff is so crazy anyway. Just, you know, understanding. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Patty. Would, would, would EMV, you know, if a, if a gas station upgraded to EMV compliant system, would that, how would that help with card skimming exactly? Well, then, as I understand it, then the skimming devices just wouldn't be able to work because you're not, um, they're not able to read the, the card data. Oh, because of the way it's it's reading the encrypted data. So you're talking about the skimmers. I'm thinking of a different kind. You're talking about the yeah. skimmer that someone is actually putting a skimmer inside of the pump, maybe at inside night they're going the in pump, and they're, exactly. oh, I see. Okay, I got it. Right, and so with the, right. with the EMV, they wouldn't be able to do that because it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Interesting. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe they're looking at that as two different problems then, right? I guess it's like the skimming part is exactly, one problem yeah. and then fraud is another. But, yeah, both, both you know, significant issues it sounds like. Yeah, and I just I, I picked up an interesting data point from Ate Group, which uh, said a counterfeit fraud involving gas station pumps. So that would be you know the mm-hmm. the skimmed cards um, from you know card numbers from the uh, from the gas station pumps uh, result in four hundred and fifty million dollars uh, are expected to result in four hundred and fifty million dollars of fraud losses this year. Mm. Well, and it does make sense too that 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 number would start to skyrocket because, you know, as there are less and less plate, like if okay, if I'm a criminal and I have a, a, a created a technology or have a technology that will skim information from a non EMB compliant terminal, mm-hmm. well, the places where I can put that device are you know sure. going away, right? So right. it does seem like if gas stations are not EMB compliant, that's kind of where those types of criminals would you know, would congregate, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's the biggest reason, you know, why there should be, you know, why gas stations should want to um, be in compliant, despite the fact that of course it costs them a fortune to do that. But right. um, Right. You know, I actually, just as an aside, I did a column on that in the green sheet. If anybody's interested, I think it's in the issue that went out in um, early May. Okay. Um, But you know, there's a, I, I, throw out a lot of data points, which I didn't want to clutter people's minds with tonight, today, but yeah, um, sure. there's some interesting stuff there. Hmm. Yeah, and, be, uh, before so... I close, I had yeah. a, there was a, another interesting thing that I came up with this week. Um, it's a few data points for those who might be considering selling card acceptance services for rental payments. 
Rental payments. Oh, wow. Rental I actually payments. just had a conversation with somebody about this. So, yeah, go ahead. This yeah, will be interesting. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing. You know, you, uh, you know, in my days in payments, I've been, you know, rental payments have always been a big thing. Use the ACH, use the ACH. But, uh, you know, cards are, are equally um, useful. And uh, there's a company called Rentech Direct. Uh, they do software solutions for landlords. Okay. And uh, interesting that they found that while rent payments fell in April and May, you know, people were late with their rent payments and so forth. Right. Uh, those renters who used online payment options pretty much continued to pay on time. Wow. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. The uh, RentTech said it found a 17% drop in rent payments in April. But – for uh, online payments, it was only 1.5% vis-a-vis March. And then in May, the online payments went back up again to be on par with March. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I thought that was very interesting because, I mean, if you're having a hard time making your bills, you know, making ends meet, you're good if, and you have an automatic uh, debit from, you know, an automatic charge to your card or a debit to your debit card or whatever – I would think that, you know, the first thing you do is go in and close that out, right? Right, right. So, you know, whether it's a convenience factor, whether the fact that people, it's automatically coming out so people aren't paying attention, I'm not sure. But I think that it's, uh, you know, the fact that people are, I just thought it was very interesting. People who are using, um, you know, digital payments for the rent are paying rent in larger numbers than those who are using checks and paper and, and cash. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And it's, so I, I just actually had a conversation um, yesterday because uh, you know, as a serial entrepreneur, I'm always like starting ventures and things like that. And sure, we had uh, myself and my business partner um, like a year and a half, two, probably two years ago, we built a software uh, for self-storage property owners. Okay. Uh, uh -huh. And then we also had expanded it because it's kind of the same thing as a rental, you know, like an apartment sure. building, you know? Right, right. Um, and it had it integrated with the NMI gateway and has the, um, uh, you know, ACH and the credit card options in there with, mm -hmm. you know, customer portal, all that stuff. And uh, I never really did anything with it. We kind of got it started and then I had some other opportunities come up that took precedence. Um, but anyway, we were just talking to somebody yesterday. I was looking for you know, companies that would want to leverage it or whatever. But uh, it, I was, you know, we were talking about it because it, it really does seem like an interesting time to jump into I that. Think and, so. sure, you, you know, yeah. based on what you just said, I mean, I wonder, I wonder how that impacted even maybe self storage, you know, mm -hmm. properties I as bet well. You, I bet you it was very similar. Yeah. Because it was very similar. Well, you know, the thing I was thinking about with self storage, you know, a lot of those self storage units that we had dealt with before, you know, they were literally only taking cash or check in person. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, People yeah, couldn't I, come in I and bet. do that. You know what I mean? So I think that's uh, potentially really interesting. I wonder if there's an opportunity there. So, yeah, always yeah, it's, it's really very interesting, interesting stuff. too, because I, just as an aside, I have, uh, you know, family and friends who, oh, my gosh, my storage unit's coming up and I need, can you give me, you know, $100 in cash? Right. I'm like, you pay it in cash? Oh, yeah. I go every month and pay them in cash. And it just blows my mind. I, I was like, if really I was crazy. in sales, I'd be out there selling credit cards yeah. to to storage units. Yeah, there you go. Well, if there's an ISO listening, that's, uh, you know, I'll get, do a plug for my software there. So if sure. there's ISOs listening that are like, oh, I want to tap into that market and you need the software to do it, you know, shoot me an email, james at cc.salespro.com and uh, we can talk. So we, we're currently not doing anything with it. So it's one of those things.
Great. Patty, awesome stuff as always. Very interesting. Yeah. Thanks, James. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field, with James Shepard. So Patty, today I want to talk about uh, overcoming objections in sales. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I, I do this occasionally where I kind of get uh, stuck on a topic and I just, you know, keep digging into it, making content about it. I made a video uh, last week um, about this topic of how to overcome any objection or maybe it was two weeks ago, and then I did some blog articles about it. I've just been thinking about it a lot, and uh, and then I just did a video for our Facebook group about it actually this morning. I saw that, actually. It was very cool. Thanks. Um, yeah, and it just is so interesting to me because the more I – like, for me, it's a challenge. Like, as a trainer, the challenge is there's things that you're – that you know you're good at, but mm -hmm. it's like a whole different skill to figure out how do I explain that to somebody else. Yes. Yes. Right. And, and, you know, understanding it from their reality. And I've always just kind of had this assumption about the way that I deal with objections that it was the same way everybody dealt with them in general. And they just needed to know mm -hmm. the wording, you know, right, like because it works for you. So, right. right yeah. Like, let me just tell you what to say, you know, and then it's like, well, that's not working for me. And I'm like, OK, well, it works for me. What's the deal? And right. what I finally figured out is that there's this uh, fundamental issue in the way that people deal with sales objections. And. Um, everybody doesn't think of it the same way that I do. And so I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of a cool insight. I can maybe share some value. So the, the concept I've, I've realized that I have implemented that others maybe haven't yet is I really never accept the objection or I don't, I guess I would say I don't accept the premise of the objection. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really ever rebuttal the objection the way it's presented to me unless I want to. If it's an objection that I like, you know, uh -huh. like if somebody says, well, I wouldn't want to do that because I, you know, I'd be stuck and I couldn't get out of it. Well, if I actually don't sell contracts, then I would just say, well, actually, I'm so glad you brought that up because with us, we don't have a contract. So you're actually not locked in. So based on that, I'm sure you'd be interested in moving forward mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because that's an objection I like. You know, I, I want to rebuttal that because I have a right. good answer for it. You have a good you have a good rebuttal to the rebuttal. Right. But. What happens more often with the objections is that it's actually stuff I don't want to deal with. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, for instance, maybe someone will say to me something like, James, uh, you know, we just signed up with another company. We're, we're not interested in switching at this time. We want to see how it plays out with them. Well, if you if you allow that to stand and you accept the premise of that statement, you're not going to make the sale. So. Right. I don't care what you say. There's no argument. It's like people look at, at objection and rebuttal as an argument, and that's not what it is at all. And so it's like, how can I argue with the merchant after they say that and sell them? Well, you can't. I mean, they already signed up with somebody. They just signed up a month ago. They don't want to switch right now. I mean, that's, that's their current reality. So instead, what you have to do is you have to step back and you have to 
resituate this thing and change the reality of the situation before you can do any kind of a rebuttal. So in this case, I just mentioned that example. I might say something like, oh, wow, that's I'm so glad that you're a person that likes to shop around and find the best rate. Was it primarily a lower rate that, that caused you to make that switch or was it service or something else? Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, yeah, mainly it was rate. You know, they gave us a much better deal. So I say, oh, great. Well, you know, here's my thought on that. You know, since you are a person that's looking for the best deal and, you know, I'm sure you know that most processing companies will give you a grace period for a little while where, you know, you can try their company out. If it doesn't work, you can cancel with no uh, financial penalty or anything like that. You know, right. what I would say is probably it would make sense then to get at least one more proposal because I know I want your business more than they do. So I'm, I hope I can give you a better deal. Um, mm -hmm. And if I can give you a better deal, that's something that would probably be worth considering while you're trying this out and while you're making this decision. And that way you can try out many options before you make that long-term decision. Right. I mean, that makes sense to you, doesn't it? So, mm -hmm. you know, so what I'm doing, Patty, of course, is I'm just totally repositioning it. So right. I, I, I don't accept what they said, <laughs> you know, right. instead I'm, I'm giving them a different reason why they feel that way. They actually don't feel that way because they've made a decision long-term. They feel that way because they've made a decision short-term based on savings. Since I can offer more savings than their current company, that means they should try me out before they make a long-term decision. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so by like repositioning it that way, it just makes it so much more effective. And so, you know, my challenge to, you know, ISOs and, and salespeople out there is, you know, look at these objections that you're hearing. And I'll tell you one other thing, Patty, that just absolutely drives me insane. Um, you know, I, I always struggle with what I do. I always struggle to help sales managers and executives understand the importance and the value of this stuff. Right. Um, you know, yeah. I talk to sales agents all the time where they're like, you know, they're selling five, six, seven merchants a month. Mm -hmm. And I talk to them and we identify four objections <clears throat> that they deal with a lot. Right. And I fix the way that they're dealing with those four objections and they go from selling six a month to 10 a month. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You know, and then it's like I go to an executive at an ISO a lot of times and say, hey, why don't we spend why don't we do a one hour live role play event with your entire team to deal with these four objections that one of your agents came to me about that, you know, took them from six to ten. Oh, I wouldn't want to take the whole team out of the field for an hour. Oh, wow. For one hour, right? And it's like, okay, so you're telling me if you could get your average per rep per month deal count from six to eight, let's split it in the middle, right? Sure, right? You and know, like have, uh, 20, either be able to have 20 reps, right? Right. So you just increase 40 a month. Right. You know, and it's like for them, a lot of times sales managers, unfortunately, get too trapped into all of the administrative aspects and operational aspects of managing and the a sales team. Quo. Right. And what right. they forget is that they're managing a sales team. Right. So if you help them increase their sales ability, you will get more sales. Right. So you right. can you can pull your hair out all day long trying to get them to work harder, but they're probably not going to. Mm -hmm. So what you know, so it's like you can try to get them to increase the number of contacts and motivate them, and that's fine. You know, if you're an individual agent, you know, you can work on your schedule and your efficiency, and, and for sure there's there's always opportunity there. But to me, the low-hanging fruit is get better at sales, right. you know? So anyway, all that was my little rabbit trail. But, you know, look at the objections you're dealing with. What are the objections that are currently stopping you dead in your tracks? You know, you're not, you're not selling anybody when they say, 
well, I have to talk to my partner about it or I need to think about it or mm -hmm. um, whatever the objection is for you. And then come back and think about how could you reposition the reality of that situation? How could you reposition the feeling, the way the merchant feels to something that's more manageable? You know, when somebody tells me, well, I, I work with my partner, uh, you know, and we make all these decisions together. I say, oh, that's great. I never want you to make a decision you're uncomfortable with at all. But I think I might have, you know, I don't think I did a good job of really explaining how this all works because really I'm sure you and your partner always want to have as much data as possible before making a decision anyway, right? They're like, mm -hmm. well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why we do our trial period. So right. what I'd recommend is let's do a trial for 30 days and I'm sure you've signed up for free trials of software before. This is no different. You're just signing up for a free trial of the credit card processing. Let's try it out for 30 days. At the end of that 30 days, when you get that first statement, how about we go ahead and schedule a time for me to sit down with you and your partner. And, and your it, partner, right. Yeah, and now instead of me just telling you stuff and you you know need to believe me, why don't instead, why don't we actually sit and look at the data Right. And I can say, look, here's what I did on your statement. And then at that point, if you say, hey, that's not what we wanted, well, you're on a trial. No harm, no foul. You know, right. um, if you right. say we want to move forward, then we move forward. You know, but I'm not making you to ask you to make any big long term decisions right now. This is just a free trial. And I'm sure that's something you can figure out on your own, you know, and then get your your business partner's involvement once a final decision needs to be made. Does that make more sense to you? So it also it also seems to make sense, even if it's not that excuse. Uh, you know, even if it's like, oh, you know, I just got too much going on. Well, fine, then let's just do a free trial and let me know when I can come back and we can sit down and talk about this, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Yep. And say, yeah. and, and all you're doing there is you're repositioning and you're, and it's like they're saying they don't have time right now to talk about it. What you're saying is you're repositioning it to say they don't have time right now to make a final decision. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're like, that's okay. You don't need to make a decision right now. All we need to do right, right. now is do a free trial. Yeah. So right. you get the idea. And I could go through, you know, 50 different objections, but I think, you know, the, our audience gets the idea. But, you know, you really do want to reposition these things such that it's it's like, okay, yeah, that this is this is an objection I want to overcome. And so if you're getting an objection that you don't like and that it's you're not moving forward, you know, and you find yourself arguing, you know, it's if you find yourself arguing with a business owner, you did something wrong. Yeah, yeah, you don't yeah. want to argue. You know, like you're like, yeah. well, I won the argument. Did That's you make the not sale? The way to a sale. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I would say reposition. Look at those objections and figure out how to overcome them. And it's it's again to go back to my point a second ago, my rabbit trail. That's very valuable. Whether you're an individual agent, whether you're a team, mm -hmm. coming up with not just you know canned blather but really diving in and understanding the problem. You know, when I work with a consulting client, uh, we just have, uh, I think right now we have three ISOs working with us on, you know, making new custom training for their team. And when I work with these ISOs, it's like, it's an iterative process. You know, you, you come up with something that you think sounds good. And then I'm like, okay, cool. Now let's revisit, try it out. You know, well, let me talk to the agents. Like, how is it working? And, you know, inevitably you're going to find out that the stuff you thought was going to work maybe doesn't always work as well as you hoped and right, that and it's right. an iterative process but it's it's very very valuable that that time is like you know yeah you could spend all your time on reporting you could spend all your time on holding your people accountable um you know and and all right. of these things but at the end of the day if your salespeople don't know how to sell your results are not going to be good right because it's a sales right. team so anyway so there you go stuff, take, take a look at those objections and hopefully that'll help Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, 
we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.